Take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 9. I know this is different. I know this is strange, but it's for a purpose. Daniel chapter 9. We're going to read, picking up where Pastor Justin left off in verse 20 through the end of the chapter, and then we will focus our attention on that this morning. It is an abbreviated service in a sense. It probably won't feel abbreviated uh, as we go through it, but uh, we have shortened some things to allow for uh, some additional time in God's Word. Daniel chapter 9, I'm really going to ask that you keep your Bibles open here and read along with me. Uh, Verse 20 to the end of the chapter. Uh, Let's begin, verse 20. Now while I was speaking praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The streets shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So that is the passage that we are looking at uh, this morning. Um, It is a powerful passage, uh, but uh, confusing if you do not think think through it in the right context. Now I think that I'm describing it to you this morning in the right context. It's your job to follow along and consider it. Daniel has been praying He has been spending his entire adult life in captivity in Babylon. If you think of this from Daniel's perspective, he is a young man, a teenager, a a young teenager, when he is taken away from his city, Jerusalem, uh, as one of the royal captives, and instead made a servant in Babylon, the kingdom, the people, the capital city of the people who had conquered his people, Israel. And he has lived his entire life in this context, Um, away from his home. He has watched from a distance as Israel has rebelled 
multiple times against Babylonian rule until finally Nebuchadnezzar goes to Jerusalem and completely destroys it. Destroys the wall, destroys the temple, makes it his intent purpose to not leave a single building standing to to make it uninhabitable so that the Jews will not revolt again. Daniel has watched all of this from Nebuchadnezzar's court from Babylon as a captive, the whole time wondering what in the world God is going to do. God had made far-reaching promises to Israel as a nation, and yet Israel as a nation is no more. God had made far-reaching promises concerning the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is no more. God had made far-reaching promises concerning the temple and the kingship and what he would do among his people. Those people, for all intents and purposes, are not a people anymore. That temple is gone, the city is gone, and there are very few people who remain faithful to this God at all. And it brings a question. What kind of God allows his city and his people to be so utterly judged and destroyed? Daniel has no doubt wondered this and contemplated about this his entire adult life until now we come to a period where he is an old man and he has not seen progress in any way, shape, or form in any of these promises that he has clung to about what God will do with Israel. In fact, he has spent his existence watching Babylon thrive, and now the Persians come to rule the Babylonians and conquering them. What kind of God does this? This kind of God does this. In Daniel's perspective, this is about God's people and God's city and promises God has made to them. But the whole point of this redemption Bible study that we've been doing since the beginning of the year in January has been to understand that from the beginning in creation, God pictured a Messiah who would come and deal with sin. So Daniel is now praying desperately for his people and his city. He's not asked a thing in this prayer about the Messiah. He's not asked a thing about the coming Uh, king of kings he has only asked for his people and his city but God's reply is about Jesus God's answer says Daniel this is not merely about a city and a people this is about a savior a savior who's been promised I understand if you have been sitting through these sermons and struggling saying I am not much into studies of ancient peoples. I am not much fascinated with things about ancient gods. I understand. This is not about ancient peoples and ancient gods. The context in which Daniel is writing is from the perspective of an ancient people. And yes, ancient gods are being judged and dealt with through this. But this is about Christ Notice in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, Daniel says, In the first year of his reign, that's the Persian ruler, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Jeremiah wrote this prophecy before the Babylonian captivity. But Jeremiah was not a popular prophet in Jerusalem. He was not well liked. 
As you can imagine, people who stand up and say, God is going to judge our sin, are usually not the most popular speakers. The people who are popular are the prophets that stand up and say, God loves us and everything's fine and do whatever you want and this will be okay. Jeremiah, as far as we can tell from his writings, had two converts his entire lifetime. Two guys who believed him and his own people shunned him and were a thorn in his flesh and wanted him to go shut up and go somewhere and, and just leave them alone. Jeremiah wrote about the Babylonian captivity that was coming and he prophesied that it would be 70 years. But Daniel is not in Jerusalem while Jeremiah is writing and prophesying all of this. He's been taken away into captivity and he doesn't have access to these books until later on in his life when they come to him from Jeremiah's work in captivity in Egypt. Now as he has them and he's reading Jeremiah the prophet, he understands that God actually has a plan in what's happening and he realizes this must have been a shock. We are actually almost to the end of this 70-year period. Uh, what does Jeremiah say? Well, a couple samplings of this. This is chapter 25, verses 11 and 12 from Jeremiah. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. Talking about Jerusalem. This whole land will be a desolation and an astonishment. These nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. Now, Daniel's reading this and he says, okay, this tells me that the Babylonians were going to be judged after 70 years, and in fact, that's what's happened. You remember the story about the writing on the wall and the feast of Belshazzar, and Daniel saying, you can keep all your riches to yourselves, the Persians are at the gates and you're getting ready to be judged. He knew that, and he knew that was going to conclude the 70-year period of captivity. What he doesn't know is what's coming next. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 and 11. For thus says the Lord, After seventy years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you. So the promises that God has made are not over in the captivity. That's what Daniel's reading. And I will cause you to return to this place. What place? Jerusalem. Their place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and of hope. Is Israel deserving of these things? Is Israel deserving of it? No, they've chased after foreign gods the entire monarchy here. It's been a constant thorn in the flesh. They have cheated on God, if you were, over and over again. But God has his thoughts towards Israel to save them. Verse 12 of that passage. Then you will call upon me. And go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search me with all your heart. You can see in Daniel's prayer, in Daniel 9, that he is reaching out to God in prayer, in a sense, attempting to fulfill this very verse. You will call upon me. You will, you will, you will present supplications to me. You will ask for my help. You will call out to me for assistance. And that's what Daniel's doing. The next first and the last one we'll see from Jeremiah 29. I will be found by you and I will bring you back from captivity. 
I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Never in the history of the world has something like this happened, that a nation could be completely annihilated and driven out of their homeland and yet regather in that homeland under the same banner and the same name and the same nation. And it's happened now with Israel twice. Here now, um, in the books that we're reading, and also in the last 100 years, Israel regathered once again from annihilation and dispersion across the known world into their homeland. There is no parallel to that in all the nations of the world. So Daniel prays. And notice what he's praying for. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, For your city, that's what he's concerned with, and your people are called by your name. This is Daniel's concern. Your city, your people, and now God answers. In verse 21, we see two non-coincidental, remarkable things. Remember, Daniel is praying for Jerusalem and Israel. But when God answers... He says, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. Neither of these things are accidents or coincidence. God sends Gabriel and he sends him to Daniel at a particular time. When it says at the time of the evening offering... In Jerusalem, when Jerusalem was a city, and there was a temple, and there were priests, because as Daniel is praying, none of that is happening right now. There is no temple. But Daniel is saying, at about the time when the priest would go in and offer their evening offerings, that's when the angel Gabriel appeared to me. Neither of these things are coincidental. They point to Christ. Gabriel will not show up again in the Bible until Luke chapter 1 when he announces the arrival of the Messiah. This is it for Gabriel. Uh, God uh, is answering Daniel's prayer for the nation and his people with a messenger specifically tied to the Messiah. And the time of the evening offering, the evening offering was the offering of a lamb, a spotless, perfect lamb of God. It was accompanied by a meal and drink offering, and it was offered at the hour of 3 p.m., which is the hour the Gospels record for us that Christ himself died. This is all um, non, you know, uh, 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 this doesn't make sense in Daniel's mind. He's not putting this together. He doesn't have a view of Christ. He doesn't have a view of what Jesus will do. He's not seeing the new covenant where Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. He's not, but God is putting together a theme for us to see Jesus in the Old Testament here. Um, you'll notice uh, there's a quote here from John 5:39. It might be too small for you to read from where you're at, but Jesus repeatedly tells his disciples, tells those around him, that the Old Testament scriptures speak of me. And this is just one of those examples. He tells the Pharisees, you search the scriptures 
Because you think that in looking at the laws, you think at that looking at the commands, you find everlasting life for yourself. In other words, you Pharisees read the scriptures and you say, I do all of these things like the rich young ruler, and so I am justified by God and I will have eternal life. But Jesus says, these are the scriptures that testify of me. The Old Testament is what he's talking about. So we are on the right track here. Remember, the scriptures we have seen in previous weeks are always pointing towards this Messiah. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin at the beginning of creation in the garden and they are in broken fellowship with God because of their sin, he promises them a Messiah who will crush the head of this serpent, of this demonic entity, of this fallen angel Satan who has corrupted them. Not only does he speak to Adam and Eve about their judgment, but about the judgment of Satan and his work in his creation. In Genesis 12, when God identifies Abraham as a man of promise, he says to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we spent a great deal of time thinking through how in Abraham, in this selection, God is now telling all of us who have ears to hear and eyes to see, this is the family line from which the promised Messiah of Genesis 3 will come from. You can trace that all the way through the book of Genesis. You see God's selection of Abraham and then God's people moving through Noah and his offspring. Abraham coming from the line of Shem and then Isaac being the son of promise from Abraham. Jacob proceeding from Isaac who's renamed Israel until Joseph comes at the end of Genesis. We're not following a random ancient people group. These are not random stories about old things that happened and stuff God did. We are following the genealogy of the Messiah, which is why when you open your New Testament and you find a genealogy to begin Matthew, a genealogy in Luke, you are rediscovering the work of God in the coming of this Messiah. As evil, as satanic, Dark spiritual forces work against God and his people in the Old Testament. God is preserving the lineage of the promised Messiah who will come. You can see this as the covenant is reiterated to Abraham in Genesis 17. Kings shall come from you. Kings of peoples will come from the offspring that I will give you. And then at the end of Genesis, Israel, Jacob, blessing his sons, speaks to Judah, the third son not the first, not the second, whom you would expect to have priority when it comes to ruling, but the third son, Judah. And he says, Judah, you are he among whom all of your brothers shall praise. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children will bow down before you. The ruling class will come from your tribe. Um, Judah is a lion's whelp, and of course we are familiar with the phraseology of the lion of the tribe of Judah. The scepter, the ruling scepter, will not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. That word Shiloh means, in Hebrew, the one to whom it belongs. God is looking forward prophetically from the end of the book of Genesis onward to an offspring from the tribe of Judah, from the nation of Israel, from the line of Abraham, a person whom the scepter will ultimately belong. And that prophecy ends with the last line on that slide. And to him, 
shall be the obedience of the nations. God is not losing focus here. Now, Joseph and his brothers are just trying to survive a famine. Um, Moses and under their rule, they're just trying to get out of Egypt. Daniel here is praying, just trying to find out when God is going to heal their city and their people. But God's focus is always on this man, this Messiah. He's working out other things in the coming of this man. But his focus is here. In the Psalms, when David emerges as the first great king from the line of Judah, In great prosperity, God speaks in the Psalms to David, a psalm of David, yet speaking beyond David to a ruler who would come from the line of David, from his genealogy. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Folks, David himself never and never ruled all the nations. He never ruled to the ends of the earth. We are picturing a promise made to the ultimate heir of David, the son of David, which becomes a messianic title. We've seen in the book of Daniel, as Daniel is trying to consider what will happen in the various empires of the world, the focus already in, in chapter 7 of this one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven in verse 14, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, an everlasting dominion, which shall never pass away. His kingdom, one which shall not be destroyed. And this theme of this lion of the tribe of Judah is echoed in the book of Revelation. It has not been fulfilled. It is a future thing where we hear, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. God knows what the focus of scripture is on. It's on his Messiah. Jesus is pictured prophetically in the Old Testament, even in events in which the people involved themselves are seemingly oblivious to the work of God and what he's doing. God institutes the Passover on the night that he takes his people out of Egypt. And it must have seemed a very strange thing that we are going to take this little lamb and we're going to bring it into our homes and we're going to hold it there for seven days. And after that week, on this specific day, which we'll do from now on and all our generations into the future, we'll take this little spotless lamb and we will kill it and we will put the blood from the lamb on the post in the lintel of our doors in the form of a cross. And yet Jesus becomes the Passover lamb who enters into Jerusalem at the beginning of the week, whom the people are exalting and celebrating throughout the duration of that week and at the end of the week is slain with his blood on the post in the lintel of a cross. This symbology is not just here, but all throughout the Old Testament. So that in the wilderness, when the people are wandering around and they're judged by fiery serpents and the people are dying to what these serpents are doing in and among them, wandering about in this kind of wilderness setting, God tells Moses, this is what you're going to do as the people cry out for salvation from the judgment of their sin. You're going to take uh, an image of a serpent in bronze and you're going to lift it up on a pole. And when the people look at this thing up there on the pole, then I will spare their lives and they won't die. And you think from their perspective, what an absurd way. Can't we just say we're sorry? Can't we just make some offerings or some sacrifices? But God is already picturing the idea of sin and judgment itself being lifted up so that the people of God will look to it by faith and be spared the condemnation that they deserve. This is what Jesus tells Nicodemus. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And Paul clarifying in Corinthians 
For he made him, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All of these things are beautiful pictures of God's focus on Christ, even when the people themselves could be less concerned with the Messiah at all. They just want to not die to snakes, or get out of Egypt, or come home from Babylon. But God is always pointing to the Lord Jesus. Here in Moses' passing, Moses promises on behalf of God that God will send a prophet like him and him you shall hear. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words which he speaks in my name I will require it of him. And if you know your Bibles, you can almost hear the voice of Jesus in the Gospel of John saying, I speak only what my Father has given me to speak. And of course, it's absolutely true. If they had rejected Moses as a lawgiver, if they had rejected Moses as a leader, what would they think of Christ? What would they think of his words and his commands? And if God, through all of these various judgments in the time of the wilderness, required the lives of the Israelites who were rebelling against Moses and Aaron from them, what will be required of those who reject the coming prophet who will speak on behalf of God himself? But their lives in Acts chapter 3, Peter preaching identifies this. Repeat the, repent therefore, he tells them. Be converted that your sins may be blotted out. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. So God is always working during the time of the kings. The greatest prosperity that the nation of Israel has ever known. In the midst of that prosperity, God speaks to David and he says this, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers... I will set up your seed, your offspring after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And we could say, well, isn't there fulfillment of that in Solomon, who built the temple? Wasn't he David's son? Sure, there's some fulfillment. Sure, you can see that until the next part. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. These are all Old Testament passages that show you where God's focus is. And then when Israel, in their deepest sin, goes into captivity in Babylon, when they're taken away, when they're dispersed throughout all the regions of Babylon, wiped out as a country, wiped out as a nation, their temple destroyed, their sacrifices ended. The prophet Ezekiel speaks to this. Now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the humble, humble the exalted. Overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer... Until he comes, whose right it is, and I will give it to him. Even in their deepest judgment, when the crown is taken off the heir of Judah, it's looking forward to the future coming of the lion of the tribe of Judah, when the one to whom this crown truly belongs arrives, and it's given to him. There has been 
No king in Israel from the tribe of Judah since and there will not be until the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we turn our attention to Daniel who is just asking what's going to happen to the city? What's going to happen to your people? And is there any surprise that the answer God gives him is not just about a city and a people but about Jesus Christ now, let's read the text in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. And he's going to list a number of things to accomplish. Seventy weeks to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. These things, six of them, listed in the text. Daniel is only asking when he gets to go home. He's only asking what, what's going to happen to your people now that these 70 years of captivity are over. But God has in view something far greater. Everything, everything is at its best when we can look at the scriptures and see not only a little event with a little people, but what God is doing in the totality of this. Here are the six things he mentions. Evaluate them for yourself. Now on the side in blue, I've tried to include some possible understandings and interpretations. To finish the transgression. That could mean an end of the captivity of the transgressions that led them into Babylonian captivity. It could mean Jesus at the cross putting an end to transgressions. It could mean the return of Christ when He will judge sin forever and put an end to all transgression. To make an end of sins, again, could mean any of those three things. The end of captivity, Jesus at the cross, the, re the return of Jesus Christ. To make reconciliation, for iniquity. Well, this could be the rebuilding of the temple, the reinstituting of the sacrifices, and the system of God taking the sacrifices for the people as sin offerings and guilt offerings. Or it could be Jesus at the cross. But then you get into the final three, and it's tough to see any fulfillment of them anywhere near ancient times to bring in everlasting righteousness. It's hard to see that as anything but the return of Christ. To seal up vision and prophecy. To bring it in to all vision and prophecy. To, to bring it to a conclusion, to a fulfillment. Tough to see that at the cross or tough to see that at the return from the captivity. And to anoint the most holy. Some translations may say a most holy place. Maybe it's talking about the, the uh, opening of the, of the second temple. Maybe it's something like that. And yet, when you read the book of Revelation... I think we see this at the return of Christ. So God's vision here is accomplishing far more than what Daniel is asking about. Now he says 70 weeks. This is where uh, I would encourage you not to make it hard. We have talked about this in the past. Weeks um, can be understood as a period of seven. We think of a week always in terms of seven days. The Hebrew word for week does not exclusively mean days. In fact, you will find 
whether you read an unbeliever's commentary on the book of Daniel, whether you read a believer's commentary on the book of Daniel, or whether you uh, uh, read an Orthodox Jew's commentary on the book of Daniel, uh, almost without exception, all scholars understand this to mean a week of years. In other words, each week meaning seven years. Now, you will find some exceptions, but even in Orthodox Judaism and the like, you will find this understanding very, um, uh, very prevalent of weeks of years. Um, so, if it's a week of years, you do not need to make this a complicated math problem. Seventy periods of seven is an easy problem. I think uh, my kids, even the youngest, could handle that one at this point in time. So God, I believe, I teach, and I say this firmly, is saying 490 years are determined for your people. Now, why do I say that, and what is he doing with these? Well, we have to keep going. In verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the beginning from, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, I don't think the math here is complicated. Seven plus 62 is, help me out with that one, 69. Now, he said there are 70 weeks of years in the grand scheme of what he's accomplishing. And now he says, 69 of these are going to take place in this interval. At this point, I have to pause and tell you, if you're reading from the ESV, the ESV does something with this verse that none of the other modern translations do, none of the old translations do, except for the RSV. And it separates the 7 and the 62 into two different parts of the fulfillment here. And I'm just going to be honest with you, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with this. There is no textual reason to do that. That's why every other translation does not do that. The New International Version, the New, even translations that we would not say are faithful translations, like the New Living Translation, uh, those translations don't do it. Virtually every other translation has what you have on the screen, and you can do the research of that yourself. It seems the ESV is reading a very strange and unorthodox interpretation of this text, and so is adjusting the phrase uh, to follow that interpretation. I have an ESV Bible. I have multiple ESV Bibles. I like the ESV Bible. Um, I just ordered two, study two ESV study Bibles. I'm not condemning the translation, but I'm pointing out what they themselves have done, and it's, it's, it's unmistakable if you're going to study these verses. They're the only translation that have created some sort of separation here. The other translations are very clear, and the text itself is clear. It's describing 69 weeks as a period of 7, followed by 62. Why is it doing that? There have been lots of hypotheses. Some people think that the initial 7, the 49 years, is indicative of the period of struggle to actually rebuild the city, and the years that follow are the time period after the actual rebuilding is completed until the coming of Messiah the Prince. I don't know. The truth is no one knows. But in the text, they're presented to us broken down into 7 and 62. And yet the 7 and 62, as you can see on this timeline, are in between two main events. Now, this is not hard. There's a starting point and there's an ending point. And between the starting point and the ending point, there are 69 weeks of years. There are 483 of the 490 years that are determined for the people. And when this period comes to a conclusion, 
We're told in the verse, Messiah, the prince, will be there. Now that's an amazing thing. There's all this time. Eventually, you're going to get a command to go and rebuild Jerusalem. And if you start counting then, 483 years, you will run into Messiah, the prince. I want to draw your attention in verse 25 to the beginning, where it says, Know therefore and understand. I think some people take passages like this in the Bible, and because there's differing views, or because it involves basically two math problems, they're like, this is too hard. No, we don't do that with anything else in life. There's no other part of your life where you're like, wait, we have to do two math problems, we have to multiply and, and add, I'm out. You know, I'm, this is too much for me. Like, we don't do that with anything else. Maybe some of you, you shouldn't do that with anything else. I saw some odd looks on your faces, but, but, but you, need to, you need to hear what Gabriel is telling Daniel. He's telling him, know and understand this. And I think of Jesus at the triumphal entry. We think of the triumphal entry and we think of palm branches going down and people shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The priests, the Pharisees running up to Jesus, riding on the, on, on the foal of this donkey and they're, they're saying, tell these people to quit saying these messianic things about you. People are treating you like you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, that if they don't cry out, the rocks and the trees will cry out. That's all here. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, fulfilling the psalm about the Messiah. That's what the people are saying. So we think of it as an amazing time. But Christ knows what happens at the end of this Passover week. He knows this is the week of his rejection and his crucifixion. And as Jesus is ascending into the holy city during the triumphal entry procession, he cries. He begins to cry. Luke 19 describes this to us. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation." So when we read Gabriel's instruction to Daniel concerning the Israelites and Jerusalem, Jesus expects them to know. He expects them to understand. And yet they don't. Verse 25 says, The streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Now in the book of Nehemiah, we get a starting date for this. There's not universal agreement on a starting date with this. But this is the one that makes the most sense. King Artaxerxes was a Persian king. You can read about King Artaxerxes in your Old Testament. And he gives Nehemiah the instructions to return back to his homeland, Jerusalem, and begin construction rebuilding. We have a date for this in the book of Nehemiah. We do in chapter 2. The date is 445 B.C. Well, we have a starting point for this. We're told how much time is in between. What can we do from there? There are... Years, and then there are years. This is the most complicated part to think about when you're understanding this prophecy. But truthfully, it's not that difficult. 
We operate on a solar calendar. That means we trace the days and the months by the sun and the earth's revolutions around the sun. That's how we operate, the solar calendar. However, ancient peoples often used the lunar calendar. In other words, they would mark the days and the seasons by the moon. Now, in both the solar calendar and the lunar calendar, there lacks precision to 24-hour days. This is why we have leap years in our calendar. Where every few years on the solar calendar, we account for a few extra days to make sure things stay on track with the proper seasons and the proper times of the year. Um, So we correct with a leap year. In ancient Israel, their months were to be 30-day periods of time, and they would correct once every few years with an entirely new month at the end of their calendar. This calendar was given to them in the lull, this lunar calendar. Their feasts revolved around it, so they corrected, but differently than us. Thus, when we talk about years given in the Bible in terms of prophecy, they are given to us in terms of 360-day years. This is not just in Daniel. It also features in the book of Revelation on the other side of the cross. When we're told that three and a half years is described as 1260 days. That math only works if you're talking about Jewish calendar 360-day years. So, these, these years that are given to Daniel are not, um, you know, Grecian, Roman, solar calendar years. They're lunar calendar years, which means a year is a year, but the amount of days you're counting in a year are not going to be the same. So for us to count forward from this point in 445 BC, we have to count the number of days per years that Jesus in, is using in the New Testament revelation of Christ. We have to count forward in 360 day years. And when you do that, when you count forward, counting each year as a 360-day period of time, and then convert the total number of days to the calendar we use, the solar 365-day calendar, build in the leap years that we use to correct, you get a very precise year, 32 AD. Folks, that is amazing. It is majestic. It is remarkable. At the end of this period of time, this it says 62 weeks, but remember the 62 come after the 7 that we added them to in the previous verse. Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. We are picturing here, remember, if you're asking questions about Israel and Jerusalem, this is way more information than what Daniel is looking for. But God has said these 70 weeks will put an end to sin, will make reconciliation. (laughs) And so in these years that he's laying out, he's including the most important thing in human history. The thing that allows us not to die and go to hell. The reconciliation of us by Christ at the cross. This Messiah who we have been pointing towards since Genesis chapter 3, when sin began, will be cut off, but not for his own works, not for his own life. And what does Isaiah 53 say? But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. This is core to the Christian faith. 
We call this the atonement. And this is what God has in view. He has it in view at the Passover, with the Passover lamb. He has it in view in the wilderness with a serpent that is lifted up that people look to by faith to avoid the judgment of God that they justly deserve. He has it in view at the offering of Isaac by Abraham on a mountain in the land of Moriah, which is the land of Jerusalem. And now Christ, the Son of God, will be offered outside the city on a mountain in the land of Moriah. God, in his majesty, is always looking toward the cross. And whatever you say about when the book of Daniel was written, you can't get away from that. You can say, well, Daniel speaks so clearly to the Greek empire and the Persian empire that I think it was a forgery and it was written around you know, 200 to 100 B.C., long after the Greek and the Persian empires. You can do that. You have no textual reason to do it. But if you just don't want to believe that God could tell the future, you can do it. But it was still written hundreds of years before Jesus. And you cannot escape the fact that at 32 AD, when this clock runs out, there is on the earth a man named Jesus. A man who the entire world recognizes has been called the Son of God and the Messiah. A man that in the 2,000 years since then, his name has been exalted above every other name so that now approximately half the world's entire population calls upon the name of Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. Now, there are minuscule and decreasingly so land masses whom the gospel has never reached or spoken to. Amen. To whom God in his sovereignty has taken 120 people on the other side of the cross and through the book of Acts sprung a church into the Roman Empire and all of its surrounding regions that had no business springing up. People do not make great religious evolutions from a dead Messiah. People do not make great religious leaps off the bounds of believing that a dead man was alive. You can look at all the great religious movements of human history and find nothing resembling what has happened in Christ. And this man, this Messiah, is predicted in writing, inarguably hundreds of years before his time, coming and dying at the time that he died, and his name for the last 2,000 years has been gloriously magnified. And in this, I see the majesty of God's sovereignty even in the middle of human affairs. This is humbling, and it's beautiful, and it should be rock-solid convictional for Christian people. Daniel 9.26 says, After the Messiah is cut off, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Daniel's asking, what's going to happen with the city? What's going to happen with my people? After the cutting off of the Messiah, the city and the sanctuary will be destroyed by the people of the prince who is to come. The end of it shall be with the flood and the end of, de- and the end of that desolations. We know who destroyed Jerusalem after the cutting off of the Messiah. It was the Romans in the year 70 AD. That's locked in. We can put that on a timeline. There's no question about that. Who is the prince who is to come? Who are his people? Well, we've studied this in the book of Daniel. We know these things. We know that there will be 
four world empires in dominance over God's people. We know what those empires are. We know them so clearly that people who do not want to believe that God has the ability to tell the future demand that we understand Daniel to be a forgery. We know that the Babylonians will give way to the Medo-Persian Empire. The Persians will give way to the Greek Empire. And the Greek Empire will give way to the Roman Empire. And we know, both in Daniel chapter 2 and later on in Daniel chapter 7, we know that from these empires, this fourth empire, there will be a reconstitution of it with ten kings. On the statue in chapter 2, ten toes. On the beast in Daniel chapter 7, ten horns that emerge. And this conglomerate of kings from which one little horn will come forth. And this little horn in Daniel 7 will say blasphemous things, arrogant things against God, and will prevail against God's people. This is the man whom Jesus Christ in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man coming with the clouds of glory, will come to defeat and judge. That's all Daniel chapter 7. We know then who this prince who rises against God's people is, and we know from which world empire he will spring. The fourth, the Roman Empire. And what happens in 70 AD? The Roman people destroy the city, just like we're told in the book of Daniel. The people, of, not the prince himself, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And then we're given a word about that prince in verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That should not surprise us. We're told 70 weeks are determined for your people. We've only covered 69 of them. Here's the last one. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Clearly, sacrifices and offerings have somewhat resumed. The city and the sanctuary were destroyed in the prior chapter, but here there's an indication that he'll put an end to sacrifices and offerings in the middle of this week, the middle of this contract, this covenant. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, folks, that abomination of desolation spoken of, you have to understand that the way Jesus does. When Jesus speaks of the abomination of desolations spoken of by Daniel the prophet, he's speaking in reply to a question by his own disciples. When will be your coming and when will be the end of the age? Jesus tells them not when there are wars, not when there are earthquakes, not when there are pestilence and famine, but here will be the sign when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Let him who reads understand. Then run for your lives. Because in Jerusalem, in the city of God, that will be the time when the covenant is broken and that will start the great tribulation period. That's what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, in Luke's gospel. That will start the period to which if those days were not cut short, no flesh would survive. That starts the period in Daniel 7 where the Antichrist is making war against God's people and prevailing. That causes Daniel so much angst. And then Daniel watches as thrones are set up in heaven and the Son of Man is coming in the glory of heaven to judge the Antichrist in that little horn picture of eschatology. What are these things? He is the Antichrist. One week is the final seven years of the 490. 
The middle of that final seven years is the three and a half year period, the second half of which we call the Great Tribulation. It's pictured in the book of Revelation, described as 42 months. Last I checked, 42 months is three and a half years. It's described as a time, times, and half a time, which is three and a half in the prophetic language of Daniel. And it's described as 1260 days which, divided by 360 days in a year, the Jewish calendar comes to three and a half years. So, in the middle of that week, with three and a half years remaining, there will begin a great tribulation against God's people. The abomination shall be one who makes desolate. I told you, this is what Jesus is talking about in his ministry at the end when he talks about the end of his age and he's coming. There are the scripture references from Matthew and Mark regarding Jesus' words about what Daniel the prophet said. And until the consummation, that is the end of the great tribulation and the return of Jesus Christ. Daniel chapter 9 verse 24 speaks of 70 weeks determined for Israel. There is a gap in these weeks. We are told there is a gap in these weeks. This is not the only place in the Old Testament where there is a large gap in prophecy because the Old Testament does not disclose the crucifixion of Christ and the incoming church and the church age that follows. When you read the Old Testament prophets about the Messiah, you find two things. He will suffer and he will rule and reign forever. The New Testament clarifies exactly what this means. Christ first came to suffer. He will come again to rule and reign. Now we see, for instance, in Daniel 7, the Messiah coming with the clouds. We see his return described in the day of the Lord. A few passages we'll look at in closing in a minute. We see that in the Old Testament, but the gap that's anticipated of the church, Paul calls a mystery that was not revealed to the saints of old, but that has now been revealed by the work of the Spirit. You see Jesus speaking the Great Commission to His disciples, saying, go into all the world. During Jesus' ministry, He said specifically, I have come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There are Gentiles who seek the Lord during His earthly ministry, and He tells them, I have come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But upon His resurrection, He says, Go and take the gospel everywhere. Now we are in the age of the church. The Antichrist has not emerged. The final week of prophetic work, this 70th week for God's people, has not begun. It will begin when the Antichrist emerges. You don't need to go home and turn on Fox News or browse the internet and try to figure out when that day is going to come. You don't know when it's coming. I don't know when it's coming. You don't need to go figure it out. That's not what we're told. But it will come. The Antichrist will emerge. There will be a seven-year period of time. He will break his covenant with God's people. There will be a great tribulation for them. And the Lord Jesus will put an end to it. Here is Jesus days before the cross in Matthew 23. Old Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is telling Daniel's city and Daniel's people, Israel, who is rejecting him and crucifying him, 
you will see me no more until you cry out for my return. What does the Old Testament say of this? Zechariah chapter 12. In the day, in that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That shouldn't surprise us. We know the context of the Lord's return. The Antichrist and the great tribulation and the gathering of the armies of the earth against God's people. They will be surrounded and they will cry out for the Lord Jesus. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then, and it would only happen because God is filling their hearts with the spirit of grace and supplication. But then, Israel as a nation which has rejected Christ for thousands of years, then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him. Do you see the just that you see that what's happening in the language? God says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. This is hundreds of years before the cross. This is hundreds of years before the piercing of Jesus Christ, before the announcement of Christ as the Son of God. But Zechariah is looking deep into the future, Israel rejecting the Son of God in Jesus Christ and looking to the one day when they will look on Jesus and see Him for who He was, not a failed Messiah, but the Son of God who is bearing their iniquities, as Isaiah 53 says. Then they will look on me, they will call out to me. What does Revelation say? Now, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with the robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Verse 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen and white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with the rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name that is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the return of Jesus pictured in Daniel 7 when he will return and not be the lamb that was slain, but will be what were promised, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He will come, he will conquer, he will put an end to rebellion, and Israel will be regathered to him. Revelation 19 verses 19 and 20. And I saw the beast, the Antichrist. We give him no, we give this beast no great word. I saw him, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with fire and brimstone. What does Zechariah say? 
Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Half of the city will go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley." Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it to the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And here's the last slide from Zechariah. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be. The Lord is one and his name is one. Folks, we need not be confused about the preeminence of Jesus in the scriptures. I am captivated by the majesty and the focus of God in pronouncing this King of kings and Lord of lords that I not only know as my King and my Savior, but as my helper and my friend. You have been given the right to be called children of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We are told that we will rule and reign with Him. And we need to have no qualms. We need to have no difficulty reading in the Old Testament and seeing the plan of God fulfilled. And any time someone wants to cast doubt on a book like the book of Daniel, oh, it was forged and written later. Oh, it doesn't speak to things in the future. It's only meant to look that way. You understand and remember this. The greatest critics of Daniel cannot date it later than the 2nd century B.C. It is in stone and circulated and distributed and recovered by then. And it is hundreds of years before the man Jesus comes in accordance with that timetable. It is hundreds of years before the destruction of the city by the Romans. And it is long before what we have watched unfold, a civilization where it's even remotely technologically plausible that a one ruler could come and rule the world. We are looking towards a return of a real king. I can't say enough about this. I could bask in it forever. It would be fine with me if we sang the hallelujah chorus right now, if we sang over and over, if we just sang all afternoon. Because when you are confronted deeply, spiritually, convictionally, with the reality of who Jesus is, you see far more than a man bleeding on a cross. You see a king and an heir, God in the flesh, who was willing to endure a cross so that you can have a part in his kingdom. But do not look at the man on the cross and miss the fact that this is a lion who has come to rule and to reign. We owe great love and devotion to Jesus. We also owe bended knee, bowed heart. This is the heart from which John writes in his letters, Beloved, if you love God, keep his commandments, because we are talking about a king. A king. Let's pray.
Father, I ask that whatever doubts creep into our minds from an unbelieving world, that we will, in a sense, have a road to Emmaus-like experience where your spirit shows up in our heart as your son showed up on the road with those two despairing people. And in our hearts, your spirit reminds us that beginning with Moses and the prophets, all of your word speaks of your son. We preach a gospel that may be marginalized or attacked or mocked or ridiculed. But we preach a message of salvation rooted in a foundational understanding of a creator who has not only brought life into the world, but created a plan of redemption by which we can understand love and mercy and justice and have fellowship eternally with you. Settle these things in our hearts. Leave nothing to doubt. Thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.